0: Hello.
1: Hello. Hello.
0: Welcome Ben and Nikki. welcome to Jude's List, the podcast. Glad to have you here. Glad
2: to be here. Thank you. It's very nice to be here.
0: For my audience who really don't know much about your work and what you've done so far, could you briefly tell us a bit about what you do and then your backgrounds? Ben, you can start.
2: Uh, Yes, we met when we were at art school in the late 1970s in london we met in 1977 and became friends and then we decided to experiment by making one artwork together in 1978 and we just really carried on from there we decided to make a an installation called the kitchen which consisted of two kitchens built side by side one was an old kitchen with uh, rotting floorboards and peeling wallpaper and broken down kitchen furniture and rusty pots and pans and shelves full of dirty old broken kitchen utensils and the visitor entered the old kitchen and there was a fixed window in the wall which you could look through and see a brand new kitchen where everything was chrome and glass and polished steel and shiny and bright and it was lit with light projected through prisms So it was kind of rainbow-coloured light. Everything in the new kitchen was the new version of what was in the old kitchen. It wasn't. It was all in, you know, it was a mirror image in the way that the items in the space were set out. And the objects themselves weren't expensive. They were very cheap from bargain stores, but they were just brand new. And uh, so in a way, it was a bit like standing in the past and looking into the future. And originally, our idea had been that Nikki would make the old kitchen I would make the new kitchen but of course as soon as we started working on it it just became obvious that it was easier to help each other do the whole thing and then we just carried on working together
0: interesting you as well Nikki can you tell us a bit about yourself
1: I suppose we're both Londoners and our experience at art college was probably the first time two people had collaborated at the art school so we ended up doing a joint degree it wasn't just the kitchen that we worked on the art school was very wide-ranging in what you could do and you could move about and work in many different mediums many different ways so you could make films you could paint you could sculpt you could do 2d 3d photography and that really suited, you know, our experimentation because I really believe that art schools are about experimenting and that led to, you know, actually collaborating as well which actually set a precedent for other artists who entered the art school and felt that they could also collaborate because often artists are thought of as single identities and they're not meant to sort of work somebody else unlike in film or other mediums but it's become a lot more acceptable since then which is great
0: so what happened to your first installation after building up the kitchen? What happened to it afterwards?
1: We showed it actually, didn't we, at the Sainsbury Centre following our degree show, reassembled it and was shown at the Sainsbury Centre.
0: Interesting, and then uh, how long was it for?
2: Well, it was just up for our degree show and then it was on for a couple of months at the Sainsbury Centre. Um, the exhibition was an exhibition of recent arts graduates. You know, selectors had gone around the art schools in the UK. And
0: selected certain certain works to represent in that context. Why the subject of architecture? And then how do you use that to contrast people and buildings, basically?
1: I think buildings are the biggest found objects you find in a city. And we're surrounded by architecture. Both very, we were brought up in London, so, you know, they meant a lot to us. And we love exploring abandoned buildings and we were living at the time in a very rough area of the east end where you could discover a lot of things by exploring these buildings and entering them and find a lot of objects found objects in skips and things which um, you could use in your work. And also there were incredible workshops available with many different facilities that you could use which could help in your work as well. So it was a good area to, to be in as an artist to begin your career.
2: Yeah, In those days, the economy in the UK was very depressed and the housing market was you know, in a kind of recession and there were whole streets of abandoned buildings waiting to be developed, but people weren't developing them because they didn't you know, they weren't ready to put the money into the project. So these buildings just languished there. And I think developers because we were in Whitechapel, which is near the city of London, developers were hoping they could knock them down and build office blocks and extend the city eastwards. But in the end that didn't happen. The buildings were on the whole some were redeveloped for housing, or they were actually restored for housing uh, when the market sort of picked up again. But we used to go into, they just pushed the door open, and you could go into these old houses, and you could find people's belongings that had been left there 20 years earlier, and they, were, and they were often the belongings of elderly people. So these items, you know, some of them went back to before the Second World War, to the 1920s or 30s. And a lot of the houses were Georgian or Victorian and had never been really restored, because the area had always been very poor and run down. So it was a very kind of mysterious area that was full of... You could trace the kind of layers of history, the waves of immigration of the Irish, the French Huguenots, the Jews, and then lately the, the Bangladeshis and Pakistanis. And Somalis. So it was you know, a really interesting... In some sense, it's a kind of social history, but very mysterious. And we wanted to recreate these kind of atmospheres in our work, what in those days were called environments, but today we'd call them installations. And that's really how we got into sort of architecture and, and furniture. We used to then adapt or remake pieces of furniture uh, as a kind of exploration about what furniture can say about the way we use buildings because you find furniture everywhere in architecture. It's like a common denominator within architecture and it the way furniture is set out in a building, it can often describe how it's used. You know, you can trace how a building is used from the way the furniture is uh, set out inside it.
0: Yeah. So in terms of these buildings and looking at history, is there any parallels that you could draw from the states in which you saw them? one, and then the materials and which you found inside these buildings.
2: Yes, I mean, I think that they, you know, what struck us overall with both the buildings and the the things that we found inside them was the kind of modesty of them, but what they said about people's personal lives. And that was what sort of intrigued us and captured our imagination so much, and why we wanted to reconstruct these environments. But one day we were invited by an architect we met, and, at that time, when we were, you know, just recently left art school, so we didn't have any money. We were completely broke. and We had to find a way of supporting ourselves. So the thing we did to our money was to restore buildings for people. When they, you know, bought a place or rented a place, we would, you know, paint it. And then we got more adept at doing these things. We make furniture for people and that kind of thing. And we did some work for an architect and he asked us, he said, "Um, you know, I think you could make an architectural model, couldn't you? So we said, well, yeah, why not? We'll give it a try. So he gave us some plans and he asked us to make a model of the National Gallery in Trafalgar Square of Basement because they wanted to fit a new heating and air conditioning into the building, and they needed a model to understand how to do it.
0: What year was this?
2: So that was the first time we made a model of a building. Yeah, so that was 85, I think. We left college in 1980, and that was 85. And for us, that, that marked a real shift in our work, because when we made the model, we made the model for the architecture department of this, you know, the, of the government that was running the National Gallery. It's called the Property Services Agency. And then we thought, well, this model's amazing. It's really interesting. Why don't we make ourselves our own one? So we kept the plans and we made another one. And we put it inside the seat of a chair. We made the chair too, but we made the chair with glass seat. So it became a kind of display case. Because we're always aware that the relationship between furniture and architecture is very intimate and close. But we swapped it around. So we put the building inside the chair instead of the chair inside the building.
1: And we said, don't sit on the chair, but look in the chair. And we said,
2: the chair is not a chair, it's a sculpture. So you can't sit on it, but you can look. But that was a bit of a kind of, you know, a light went on in our head at that moment. Because we realized we could use models of buildings to talk about the way we all live together as people. You know, socially, and
1: and everyone can read a model as well. So, it's yes, you're uh, it's dripping away, you're taking away the ceiling, and you're looking in like a bird's eye view, and so you know people can read what's inside. People and you don't can need read any what's
2: inside. Training, you know, it's unless you've got some experience or you're taught to read architectural drawings. You know, they're harder to understand, but everybody can understand a model. You yeah. get it in one instantly. So then we realized that we could then talk in a you know, a wider way about architecture. So then we started to make models of different buildings and juxtapose them. So we would bring together totally different buildings like a modern, you know, a, a 1980s corporate headquarters building and put it next to the Colosseum, a model of the Colosseum in Rome or... Palladio's Villa La Rotonda at Vicenza, you know, we and or the Maison de Force, a prison in Ghent, or Melbank Penitentiary, the prison where the Tate Gallery now is. So this allowed us suddenly to make associations and links between different activities and um, different histories.
0: Yeah. So, Nikki, how long have you and Ben been working together?
1: We have been working together for 43 years, and this show here at marks our 50th solo show together.
0: Wow, wow. I want you to speak more on lessons that you've learned throughout observing different mediums that you've worked with, specifically with architecture, and then also what you've learned working together as a team, doing your 50 solo shows together.
1: I think we've learnt very much to take risks and we love a challenge and we like to be catapulted into new situations and we like experimentation, we like working with different mediums depending on the context.
2: And in terms of working together and collaborating, you know, we've learnt patience. <laughs> Mutual respect. I mean, it only works if you have mutual respect and if you're patient. And the wonderful thing about collaborating is that, you know, you get unexpected outcomes. You know, you can talk uh, about things together, reflect on them, and you can arrive at points that you would never arrive at on your own. So that's always been very exciting to us.
1: We have to agree to make something together. You know, we have to, you know, we don't want to make something that one of us doesn't want to do. So there has to be a sort of mutual, you know, we both have to say, yes, we want to do this.
0: Okay. And then what roles do you play as partners? So who conceptualizes the idea and then who carries out the vision? Oh, well,
1: I think it's a combination.
0: I don't think you can
1: separate, you know.
2: Yeah, we once we work out what we want to make, we then just divide the tasks, the labour between us and get on with it, you know.
1: In the end, you're presenting art, and so that is the end result that you want to achieve as artists.
0: Yeah. And then, Ben, you mentioned the virtue of patience. Why is that important?
2: Well, sometimes one of us sees something and the other one doesn't see it quite in the same way. So, you know, we might have to suggest something and then advocate it, persuade. But as Nikki says, you know, If both of us don't want to make it, then we don't make it. But actually, there's never really been anything that we've not made. We've always both agreed, even if not immediately, that we should make something. If one of us wants to make it, generally the other one gets it pretty quickly.
0: Oh, wow. It's interesting that you've built a relationship like that. And then I would say, so at the start of all your projects, do you always see the end in mind?
1: I think you have to hold on to the end in mind and you have to absolutely see it to the very end and that's very important to reach your vision you know when you have an idea you have to realize it and so it's a process it's a process it's a transformation
2: things change as you're working on them and you see better ends than the one you anticipated you know but yeah, I think it's very important what Nicky says, you know, you have to believe in what you're doing and hold on to that uh, idea in order to get it made. I mean, sometimes when you're working on something, you know, you think, oh, my God, why did I get involved in doing this? You know, but generally, you know, if, nearly always, if you hold on to the vision and uh, you know, pursue it, it comes right. No matter the barriers. No, no matter, matter the, the, bar- the barriers.
0: Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to 2002, the research work you did on Osama Bin Laden's house. What was that like in Afghanistan
2: and how that project make you feel? Well, that was a strange, unusual project. We were approached by a curator. We, were at an, we did an exhibition in London at Alan Christie Gallery. And we, quite a lot of the works were in the exhibition were about the global system of air routes, In a way, we see air routes as another kind of architecture, architecture of the skies. It's another system of order and arrangement and access and connection. So in that sense, you know, you can relate to it almost as a kind of celestial architecture. Anyway, we're doing this exhibition and the curator came up to us who we'd never met before, but she was at the Imperial War Museum and she said, I'm interested in this work on the air routes and... um, You know, would you allow me to put your name forward to be shortlisted for a commission to go to Afghanistan? And in the UK, this commission is called the the War Artists Commission. It's a commission given by the Imperial War Museum, which commissions artists to go to places where British troops are engaged in operations abroad. And it has a mixed history. It started off around the time of the First World War. Um, It started off because these artists were, they were conscripted or they had volunteered to join up. They were in the army and they started producing artworks. And at the outside of the war, the artworks were quite celebratory and they reflected the status quo. But as the war progressed and it became more and more clear what a dreadful, horrifying mistake and waste the whole thing was, the works became more and more radical. And they ended up being really extremely radical and scathingly critical of the establishment. A lot of these paintings are now seen as, you know, some of the most important of 20th century British art. So that's where, in a way, the museum art collection started. And it's the largest collection of British painting outside the Tate galleries. They continued to commission artists. And at times the commission became, as I said before, you know, reflected the status quo. It's quite conservative. And at other times it became quite radical. And then when they commissioned us, the media said, oh, they've commissioned the first conceptual war artist. So we were known as the first conceptual war artist.
1: We said to them when we were given the commission that we didn't know what we would do or what we would come back with. And they had to go with that, and they did go with that. So we didn't know before we went. We had no preconception about what we would make or what we would do.
2: And when we arrived in Afghanistan, we were so shocked we thought how are we ever going to make art here you know they don't need art here they need help you know quickly they need peace and and they need support but then we began you know once we got over the initial shock we began to see things that we found very interesting i mean also we didn't understand the situation very well when we first went there so it was a really rapid learning process and you know we had to do research and we had to learn on our feet a lot But we ended up making three works, a trilogy of artworks, so that this could allow us to talk about the conflict at different levels. So we made the work that gives the trilogy its title, The House of Osama bin Laden, which was an interactive digital model of a house where bin Laden had lived in the late 1990s and where he set up the first jihadi training camp in Afghanistan. And the technology we were using was, at the time, advanced computer modeling technology that was used for, at the time, the engineer we worked with was spent most of his time making, modeling city planning schemes for architects like Richard Rogers Partnership or Zaha Hadid. But anyway, he and I, when we were there, we visited this domain where Bin Laden had lived, and it was being occupied by a paramilitary group called, called the Hizbi Islami militia and we took hundreds of photographs and we took measurements um, when we came back to the UK we made work with this engineer to construct this interactive model that you could use a joystick to journey around and explore and we were using this kind of technology which is very similar to the technology used by the military for targeting and training purposes and at the time it was one of the largest virtual models that had been made But things now, of course, have moved on a lot. But we thought, you know, it was an appropriate use of the technology for that kind, that context. And also because bin Laden was a kind of, nobody really knew whether he was alive or he was dead. He was this kind of semi-mythical figure in the media popping up in different places. We thought it was the right kind of technology to use for that kind of suspended reality.
1: But again, because we love architecture, you're exploring not only his house, but his surroundings. He had a personal mosque. He had a bunker made of sort of ammunition boxes and mud and bricks and dirt. And you could actually enter into these spaces and see sacks of onions and, you know, personal things that, you know, he had left behind. And it was an extraordinary terrain because to think that he was in this very modest domain and yet he was planning these atrocious events, you know, on the World Trade
2: Center Center in
1: in New York, you know, from this complete opposite, you know, situation. Idyllic almost, facing a lake, you know, I mean, more opposite than, you know, that,
0: Why did you agree to take on this project and did you at any point in time feel you were not safe whilst you were in Afghanistan? Well we
1: certainly weren't safe when we visited his house <laughs> and also we were nearly trod on sort of unexploded, unexploded bombs and you know weapons Actually, and land landmines, land and it was pretty dangerous at times you know along the roads that you travelled, there were stones and half the side was red and half the side was white so red is danger and white is safety but you know, anything can happen. You know, people were being blown up at night, children, animals, you know, the, there were the so stones many... stones
2: are laid out in long lines and you see them everywhere. At that time, you used to see them everywhere and they marked out minefields. So, as Nikki said, you know, the red side, you don't walk on that side of the line of stones that's painted red. If you're on the white side, you're... Supposedly, you're safe. So you would literally, you know, we'd, we would drive for hours on, you know, dirt roads lined with these stones, knowing that we couldn't move off the road, you know. um, Or you would see these lines of stones just going through the countryside, you know, through broken down orchards and things like that. You know, there were times when it was dangerous, definitely, but anyway, we tried not to think about that too much. There's no art without risk, we always say to each other. <laughs> Can you explain that? No, I think it's quite straightforward,
1: really. Well, you're in a situation, and if you want to make something out of it, you
2: have to explore. Because if you're just repeating what's
1: been done before, already been
2: done, already been seen, then you're not introducing new ideas, you're not opening people's eyes. You're
1: not, not... opening up possibilities. Mm.
0: So after doing that work, what were some of the things that came after that?
1: Well, we've worked in many different ways. I mean, we've, we've done
2: large... Um, yeah, I mean, our work ranges very widely from gallery exhibitions to major commissions. I mean, fairly soon after that, we designed a bridge in London in in Paddington Basin, the Canal Bridge. So we came back from Afghanistan in 2002 and we made the first exhibition in 2003. But we've shown that trilogy of artworks in something like 17 galleries and museums in 11 or 12 different countries. So for several years, for about six, seven years after we made it, we were traveling internationally, installing the exhibition in different museums and galleries. But at the same time, you know, we designed this bridge in Paddington Basin. We, we, we did a major permanent installation at Heathrow Terminal 5, two sculptures. We've done work. We've got a major permanent installation at Piccadilly Circus Underground Station in London, uh, a transport interchange in a metro station in Paris
1: sometimes corporate as well sometimes we work with you know corporations like Bloomberg yeah. or I mean you know it depends on the context and if yeah. the work
0: is relevant
1: it's, it's always interesting
0: let's speak more on the past is never dead let's circle back to your first visit to Ghana and then how you basically came up with the whole idea for your current exhibition here in Accra
2: well We were introduced to Marwan Zakem in 2018 and uh, invited to come to Accra. Marwan knew that we're interested in architecture. It's a kind of basis or a kind of vehicle for us for making art. And also he knew that uh, Ghana has this unique architectural heritage of these slave forts built on the coast by European traders after the construction of Elmina Castle in 1482. So, although they also exist in some other countries like Senegal and Sierra Leone, Mozambique, in Ghana there are many of them all dotted right along the coast, all together in one country, more than anywhere else in the world. Why is that? I think it's, uh, there, there are a couple of reasons. Um, one is because the coastline of Ghana is very suitable for that kind of construction. And for marine navigation. So in Sierra Leone, I mean, we've not been to Sierra Leone or Nigeria, for example, but we've heard that, you know, there are large, we understand that there are large river deltas, mangrove swamps, and different coastal features which make it difficult to navigate and also difficult to access ships lying off the coast from the interior. Whereas in Ghana, you've got a coastline that's mainly beaches with rocky outcrops behind them, which is apparently ideal for building castles on. And ships can easily lie offshore and be easily accessed from the shore. So I think that was a major factor. And the other factor, obviously, was Ghana's position allowed access to neighbouring areas. Initially, the traders came for gold because Ghana had gold but then very quickly uh, the trade switched to captives to be sold into slavery. And um, so Ghana has this unique heritage, you know, which it's the custodian of um, for the world. But the history is very much a, a shared history between Europe, West Africa, and the Americas. Uh, it's a, although it's a shared history, it's a history of unbridled, unfettered. Economic opportunism and very unequal power relations and really demonstrates what can happen when uh, these relationships are allowed to continue in a moderated fashion and you know it just shows how devastating economic opportunism can be if it's not constrained. It also shows you know the incredible resilience of the people caught up in the system and held captive by it to survive it, the worst of it.
1: Yeah. When we first visited, we wanted to visit the libraries, so we went to the university and we looked at the furl collection, yes, and did a lot of research, and in Holland and in the UK, and we actually found the plans, you know, we didn't know what they would look like, but when we started looking at these plans, They had a very interesting vernacular. They had a very interesting... They sort of spoke of a particular language and identity. They had a particular look which drew us to them. So it became very powerful for us. It was a very powerful, symbolic feeling that we got when we found these
0: plans. What was the experience like visiting Almina? Almina was the first place you visited.
2: Uh, It was, yes. Almina and then Cape Coast. And then we went
1: well it was quite horrifying you know to stand in these rooms that would have been full of people in very inhumane conditions and when we first saw the door of no return to think that these people this was this tiny door that you saw there that was their last doorway and then from there they would never return you know.
2: I mean, when you, when you visit the forts, you... The thing about architecture is it, you know, in a way, it, it really speaks the truth about events, you know. There's no denying... When you visit the forts, you know there's no denying what was going on, you know. You stand in those dungeons, and you can feel the misery of the people that were held there, and you can see the cruelty of the system like nothing else, you know. And so people in Europe or in other places might want to say, oh, it wasn't so bad, or there weren't so many, or, you know... Well, but visit, when you well, go visit the and forts, then you will see yourself, They really yourself, are evidence you know. of the reality that, you know, that went on for centuries. And that's a very important thing about architecture, that it can convey that truth. Those buildings have witnessed horrors that, you know, we can't imagine, really. But they still speak today. Of that history, of what happened. That's why they're so important. I That's mean, they're why almost
1: as well. Ghana
2: is custodian of this incredibly important history.
1: There's also, I mean, incredible, they're almost like sacred places as well. I mean, in parts of the dungeons, people return and place wreaths, you know, for their ancestors, and drinks and things and objects, you know, because it's quite a sensitive place. You feel quite awkward. Being there in those spaces, you feel slightly guilty.
2: If, if you're white, if European, you're white, yeah. you
1: feel you know you feel the weight of that, a yeah. bit of a burden. You know, there, it's quite heavy.
0: Yeah. So, in your visits to other forts and castles, did you yeah. sense the feeling of guilt, the feeling of
2: dread of what happened, the history? Well, as Europeans, we do because we're conscious that the Europeans developed this trade and and um, and they consistently expanded it you know these forts and castles you know in some cases quite small but they were continually expanded over centuries to to hold increasing amounts of captives and we know that the the traders played all kinds of you know they provoked all kinds of competition between you know, different clans and states and and tribes also within Ghana in order to try and control access to the captives and to increase the number of captives available to them and all of this kind of thing. But in Europe, this is a history that is only now really becoming more widely known because if I, you know, we speak about Britain, you know, this, the Atlantic slave trade happened out of sight, mostly. And so for a long time, it wasn't spoken about. And, If Atlantic slavery was spoken about in Britain, it was along the lines of, well, we abolished it in the early 19th century, so we're the good guys kind of thing. But they never taught us that actually we also, we actually developed it centuries earlier and expanded it hugely. And... You know, it was the British that constructed these huge dungeons at Cape Coast. You know, the castle was first constructed by the Swedes and taken over by the Danes and also local Fante chiefs also had it for a while. And But it was when the British arrived that they increased the size of the dungeons hugely to hold thousands and thousands more captives. So the British have a very, played a very important role in it, but that's really downplayed in Britain. And people are now becoming, in the last few years, are becoming much more aware of it. People want to talk about it, and younger generations are not satisfied with it being concealed. They want it to be taught properly in school and that kind of thing. But, you know, speaking myself, I'm older, I certainly wasn't taught about it in school. I, so it's it's been very shocking for Nikki and I to learn about it and research it. I mean, you know, we're not naive and we're interested in history, but you know, a lot of the information wasn't just wasn't really wasn't available. available. Yeah. And also, the important thing is in Britain, you know, there are lots of institutions and which were funded with the profits from the slave trade. But like, one institution? Like the British Museum, the founding collections of the British Museum, the British Library, the Natural History Museum were all paid for with the profits of slavery. The Tate Gallery building was an endowment from the Tate family. Uh, They weren't slave owners, but their wealth came from profits made in the plantation economies of the West Indies from sugar. So it was the slave economy that they benefited from. And there are many other instances of it, and it's the same in Holland. You know, the Dutch Royal Palace, many of the major churches in Amsterdam are the churches that were paid for by the slave traders. It's where they worshipped. It's where they're buried. Those wonderful streets in Amsterdam of beautiful 17th and 18th century architecture were all paid for with the profits of the slave trade.
1: And even in London, when we walked through Lincoln's Inn Fields, you know, these beautiful Georgian buildings, you know, they were built with the profits of slavery too. And the music that was being played at the time was also from it's that period. It's
2: the soundtrack period. to slavery. So... People don't really think about that, but we're very, in Europe, very they haven't done. You know, they want to now. Many people want to know more about it. But why now? Because I think young people, they're interested to learn more about their history in a more honest way. You know, the narrative until fairly recently has been that, you know, the, the British Empire and other empires were civilizing missions, you know. They weren't. They were rackets for making money, you know.
0: Okay. What lessons have you learned, Nikki, personally, throughout doing this work in Ghana? Personally? Or personally. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's been an incredible exploration, you know, to explore some of these forts, you know, which we would never have had the opportunity before to explore, and to work particularly here in Ghana as well. We've worked in many new ways. have been working with carvers, for instance, in Aburi. And been working with embroidery in the UK. We've been working with different woods. We've been working with mahogany. We've been working with an amazing man, Baba Asaka, who was a master flag maker, Sappho flag maker. And we've been appropriating the way that works in that way within our new work. So we've been adapting different techniques and working in both places, which has been really interesting and which we wouldn't have had the opportunity to do. In another context so yes it's been really interesting in that respect
2: I mean working here and doing the exhibition here we wanted to combine the artistic techniques available in the UK and in Ghana in one body of work so that's been something totally new for us and very exciting to do so was it easy to
0: get access to some of these sites and then finding the documents from the libraries
2: Partly here. I mean, we went to the Furley collection at the Balm li- Library here at the University of Legon. A lot of the documents tended to be copies, or they were in very, very poor condition, or both.
1: Partly because of the climate as well. and uh, Yeah, because... so that
2: was unfortunate. The best material we found was in Holland, the Dutch archives, but we don't speak Dutch Uh, And it's very complicated. We have a friend in Amsterdam who gave us a lot of help and found an extraordinary book, which is a catalogue of the National Archives. So we were able to look up every entry for Ghana in the Dutch National Archive and then track down what each entry related to and the ones that had surveys and plans of the forts. We were able to ask for digital copies of these. But our friend was able to charm the librarians, which was helpful, you know, because they're kind of, you know, they've got a lot of work to do and they have limited patience. So that was and how also we worked online.
1: I mean, we did access, we There's did a research online. online. Yeah.
2: The stuff online tends to be more superficial and also very low resolution, so um, it's difficult to get high resolution information online. But no, it's been very interesting. I mean, of course, a lot of these structures were not formally documented very well anyway and they weren't actually generally built by architects anyway they were constructed by maritime engineers or military engineers and there may not have been any plans for them at all they were just constructed but they were generally later surveyed because as time went on they became more and more expensive in terms of money and manpower to maintain so the companies that ran them started to increasingly ask for help from the national governments whether it was the portuguese the dutch or the british government and they had to justify it so they often had to survey these places to plan you know what their needs were you know either in terms of rebuilding or supplying or manning or whatever
0: yeah so in terms of construction of the actual buildings looking at it now you think all the materials one were sourced locally from Ghana? Um, and in terms of like you speak about some of the things that were inside these buildings, so like furniture, was that also sourced from Ghana?
2: The very first ones they actually brought the building materials from Portugal and Holland and didn't bricks sort were yeah, we and, and so they'll meet yeah. you, you yes. can see lots of bricks that were Portuguese or dutch but later yes they tended to source the materials here especially things like timber and some of these forts were timber you know at the outset and remained so for quite a long time the furniture a lot of it was made locally one of the works we've made in the exhibition is a reinterpretation or or replica of the the dutch state chair of the last dutch governor of elmina castle and um we saw this chair in Fort Antony in Exim and we took some photos of it and we asked a carver at Aburi to help us by making, carving the chair, which, and he did a wonderful job carving it because it's a very ornate 17th, 18th century style chair with, you know, the carved lines of the Dutch royal coat of arms in it but interestingly enough when we were researching in Holland our Dutch c- colleague who was helping us found the original shipping list of Cornelis Naklas the Dutch governor who was the last governor or Dutch governor to sit in that chair and the chair is not on the shipping list. I mean, lots of other things are. His bed linen is and, you know, all his books and cooking utensils and things like that and personal effects. But the chair's not in it. So we wonder if maybe the chair was made in Ghana. It's possible, but we we'll probably never know for sure.
1: So this chair was made from a photograph and turned from a two-dimensional image into a three-dimensional object you know so that was interesting for us and he was so skilled he was able to work from our one-to-one photograph we rolled up a huge photograph of it and took it to him and then he was able to reinterpret the photograph and turn it back into a three-dimensional object yeah
0: i mean i've seen the exhibition so i've seen the chair i want to know like how long it took this carver to basically make the chair
2: Uh, and what is it made out of well, it's made out of mahogany. It probably took him two to three months to carve it. And then Nicky and I made other parts in the UK, which we brought to Ghana and, and we assembled. So we made a model of Fort Jago at Elmina, which goes, is encased in glass in the seat area of the chair instead of, originally the chair had a kind of soft upholstered velvet seat. And the seat back of the chair is a gold embroidery of the plan of Elmina Castle, on black velvet which we've installed we've upholstered into the seat back so it really is it's a combination of work you know made here in Ghana and and also made in the UK
1: and also with very specific lighting because there's a direct spotlight directly above the chair and it shines onto the model and then the model casts a shadow onto the floor and in a way we're referring to the way that we're all imprinted with buildings as we use them
2: The shadow it casts is the plan of the building. Wow, how did you get the idea for that?
1: Well, we have worked with this idea. That's
2: part of our personal artistic language. Yes. We've worked with that
1: for... for We've made series of chairs, for instance, um, prisons, a row of prisons, which contain the models of seven different ancient and modern prisons in Europe and the Americas. Yeah. And we've also recently made a series of chairs which depict
2: buildings that John Soane visited on his grand tour around Europe in 1778 um,
0: yeah. yeah. So what was your lowest and highest moment doing this project? And then how has that led us to today?
2: <laughs> uh, i mean obviously you know the- there have been so many high moments it's hard to pick one up but i think one really high moment was when we went and we saw having previously taken the huge paper cartoons one-to-one drawings for the applique works to the asafo flag maker baba shaka and in, in swedru then He worked on these cotton applique works uh, for months. And then when we came back and we saw them for the first time after he'd made them, it totally blew our minds. It was absolutely fantastic. So that was one high point, but there have been lots of high points.
1: I think the low points is the fact that the project has had lots of stops and starts, you know, because of, you know, the The whole pandemic pandemic and uh, and various other factors. So the whole process has been an extremely long one. So we've had to be incredibly resilient and hold on to the fact that, you know, it's now being finally realised. And it's a great relief. And we're very happy that it's finally
0: come to
2: pass. Yeah, but you can
0: share some more. Why was doing this project really important for you?
2: Well, because the subject is so important. That has to be the reason. We're I very mean, interested
1: in strategic architecture, and this says so much about...
2: You know, this very important history, which we think is under-discussed in I the I think UK. it's a
1: moment, too. That's a very good point, And I think it's a moment that we can draw together and all discuss this subject in an open way. And I think it's a very important thing that we can do this. I mean, We
2: hope very much that the exhibition or a version of the exhibition or the works can be seen in other places as well. It would be brilliant if we could, you know, if they could be exhibition in Europe, in the UK or Holland or somewhere, or even in the States where these works can be seen. And there's an opportunity to discuss these ideas there as well
0: yeah so what are some of the conversations you're hoping will come out of this project
2: well to be aware of this history and you know to understand you know how it developed where it came from and to you know develop awareness and vigilance around these issues so that you know it doesn't reoccur
1: gain a greater understanding
2: yeah yeah at least
0: holistically as a global village now because in fact we're having this conversation in accra but this is going out to the whole world mm. right yeah. quite so, and we're also in a phase where as even as black people are trying to uncover and understand their history this also yes, speaks been to that conversation for so
2: long yes, yeah
1: absolutely yeah absolutely
2: and also it becomes very clear how you know racism was developed as a as a way as a means to justify this trade how these corrupt, evil narratives are developed and deployed as a way of justifying the unjustifiable, you know, so...
1: And they're embedded and, you know, people can, are, in, are you know, completely taken over by them, you know.
2: I mean,
0: with the building of the forts and castles, were they purposely set for that intent?
1: well over 50 were made were built along the coast which is a huge number so it shows the extent of that whole planning that whole outlook that whole
2: i mean another thing that we've noticed you know we've talked to quite a few Ghanaians about these forts and castles and some of them are very very aware of the history and they're very aware of the architectural history and the kind of architectural and tectonic aspects of them and they're very very knowledgeable about them indeed but quite a lot of people we meet have said, oh, I don't like those buildings. I, I, know, I would never go inside there, or I never go there. or Even they say, oh, we just never think about them. You know, we know they're there, but we never really think about them. There's a big difference between the way these castles and fortified trading posts are seen here and the way castles and fortified trading posts are seen in Europe and some other places, in Europe and some other places. I mean, we met a young Garnet who'd done a residency in Scotland where there are lots of castles. And he said he was very struck by the fact that in Scotland they were viewed through a very kind of romantic lens with, you know, rose-tinted spectacles. It was a kind of, you know, people looked on them as a kind of romantic part of their history of knights in armour and, you know or the struggles for Scottish national identity and this kind of thing. So they're seen as a kind of positive part of their heritage. But of course here they're not, quite understandably in Ghana, they're not seen in the same way, they're not seen really as a positive part of, for many people they're not a positive part of the Ghanaian heritage and identity.
1: And there seems to be a conflict over whether to restore them or to whether to you know to what extent the buildings should be maintained, for instance. I mean there's you know some amazing examples of this architecture which should have more money you know put into them just to to keep their structures safe and sound, you know without you know disintegration, because a lot of them are in very bad condition.
2: I mean you know the, the thing is that they are witness to very important events very important history and that is why it's so important that we believe that they should be maintained and that people should visit them in this whole process did you
0: at all film or take videos of some of these visits
1: we took hundreds of photographs hundreds of photographs and um obviously we did social media we put things out you know leading up to this exhibition just to begin to show people these structures and you know because some of them are incredibly beautiful as well in amazing locations and we've made obviously some film because the film that you see through the door of no return yeah. was was filmed that by was us amazing. personally
0: that's amazing what was your reception visiting these sites from the locals
1: mixed reception really some people were very helpful, some people were living in these structures, they were half squatted, some of them, and so people would come out and some would say hey, you know, I went to Liverpool once or they'd have some sort of connection with you and you started talking to them, I mean it was very, very mixed but the stories were very different
2: Yes, I think people know, we've met people visiting the forts who know that people are interested in them you know, and that this interest reaches across the world, you know People come from the United States and, and in Europe and in other places in Latin America. And people know that this story can be told in a very unique way by visiting the forts.
1: Well, President Obama came himself, didn't he? And there's a plaque at Cape Coast documenting his visit there.
2: Wow, yeah. So did Prince Charles. <laughs>
1: <Okay>. <laughs> know that. He came to Osu Castle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he was in Kumasi last time we were in Ghana wow apologizing i believe
0: (laughs) (laughs) wow where can we follow the past is never dead where can we follow where the exhibition is going to go next
1: i think if you follow the gallery 1957 and talk to victoria cook she will be very helpful in letting you know how it progresses and where it might go and
0: where its future lies awesome and then ben and nikki where can we find you online
2: we have a website www.langlandsandbell.com and also we're on instagram langlands at langlands and bell
0: wonderful thank you so much for our time thank you very much Jude. Yeah, this thank is really you very, very helpful. much for a very An interesting
2: conversation film. thank you thank you
0: thanks